Oh, good morning. If you would uh, open up your Bibles to the Gospel according to John, uh, chapter 13. Uh, this week we're going to back up a little bit, as I promised last week, to include uh, verses 18 uh, through 20. Uh, once again, as we ended with those last three verses, we're going to begin uh, this Sunday with those three. I had planned, as you can tell from your worship folder, to go through verse 38 this morning, but um, after much prayer and, and work through the text, I am going to stop at verse 30 uh, so that I can take those uh, texts and really um, uh, dive into them much, much better by themselves. So... Um, what we will do is we will pray for the Spirit to superintend our time this morning. We'll read the passage in its entirety, and then we'll divide the passage and make some observations and applications. And uh, our aim is to uh, hit the aim of the biblical author as we uh, study. So let us, let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we come to your Holy Scripture this morning asking for your Holy Spirit to illuminate the passage to our minds for understanding. We ask that you would illuminate the passage to our hearts for conviction, for correction, and for comfort. And we ask that you would illuminate the passage to our will for obedience, Lord. Father, we ask that the gospel be presented clearly and correctly here and among the faithful that gather this morning at Old Town and at Wapato Valley and all the churches in our area. Lord, we desire that the kingdom of God and of his Christ would be evident in all the churches that gather this morning. And we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you are able, I know that we don't do this normally, but I think it's a good thing. If you are able, would you uh, stand for the reading of God's word? Beginning at verse 18 of chapter 13. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is God's word for us this morning. Be seated. I have entitled this morning's message, It Will Come to Pass. And I say this because 
We, we have trouble in this life, I think, uh, trying to understand or know what it is that we can trust in. What can we trust in for the future? Uh, are you confident that the U.S. Constitution will be our guiding document 100 years from now? Are you sure that what it says will come to pass 100 years from now? Are you 100% sure? Can you place your confidence in that? Can you trust the predictions of the news outlets for the upcoming events in the course of history? Can you trust the latest YouTube video that will give you insight as to what's coming up at the end times? Can you trust any of those things? See, Article 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith begins this way. It says, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. See, the Bible is a record, isn't it? The Bible is a record of what God has and what God will do by his most wise counsel that he will freely and unchangeably ordain to come to pass. The Bible's a record of what God has already ordained to come to pass. Some of it has come to pass. And so we can have confidence that it surely will come to pass. That which is inscripturated in the word of God will definitely come to pass. It is a thing that we can trust. So I will argue from our text this morning that you can trust the authority of Scripture to surely come to pass. I will also argue that you can trust the words of Christ to surely come to pass. I will also show you that fallen man needs more than an example to follow if they are going to be saved. A sacrifice for sin is necessary. The sacrifice must be pure and spotless and perfect. Since man is fully infected by sin, there is a substitute that is necessary. And that Christ is the only acceptable substitute to atone for sinners. So let us dive in more closely and look at uh, verses 18 through 20 again and look at the prophetic words of Christ here. Beginning here at verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. We remember from last week that Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he has told them that there is a blessing for those who serve one another in a posture of humility from a heart of love. He demonstrated this, and he says, "This is if you do this, there is a blessing for you. Well, look at what verse 18 follows that statement. As we begin verse 18, Jesus says, What I have showed you, the instruction that I have given you, the obedience that I am calling to you is reserved for those I have chosen. Right? I'm not speaking to all of you. Those who I have chosen, I'm speaking not of all of you. 
You, I know whom I have chosen, Jesus says. When we think about the purpose of the gathered church, we think about the, and I'm going to use this term, event. When we think about the event of worship, the event of the preaching of God's word, who is the event, the event aimed toward? Who is the event of the worship? The, the, the people who gather the preaching of God's word? What is the aim of God's word? What is the target audience of the worship service, the preaching of the word? Is it, is it the worldly or is it the people of God? Is the word of God preached for the people of God or is the word of God preached for the world around us? It, when the church gathers, when the church worships, it is for those whom God has chosen out of the world, right? The gospel that we preach to one another, it is preached to the chosen. Now, you might say, well, that seems sort of uninviting. Well, I, I don't know that it is. Because here it is, I don't know who here has not been chosen, and so I preach to you the chosen, that as, as I preach to you, God is choosing you by His power of His Holy Spirit. So I preach the message of the chosen. I preach it to the chosen. And for us who are chosen, we say, I must repent and believe once again, right? But, but it is a message to the chosen. It is a message to those whom God has called out of the world. And I'm going to say this, and I might get in trouble for those who might listen online later. I might get in trouble with some of you too, but we'll see. The American church has decidedly made the worship service and the preaching about the worldly. It has decidedly gone that way. I was reading a, a church's core values this weekend on their website, and they state on there that their primary, their primary focus is a post-Christian world. They, they talk about the pre, and, and I get kind of what they're saying, that, that they, they realize that they live in a post-Christian world and that they are to, to somehow as a body invade this post-Christian world, I think. But as I read this, I thought the aim is just off. Isn't it? Like, no, you gather the church because you are those who have been redeemed from the world and you have come in together and you share Jesus Christ in common and you come in together to worship and you come in to go to the table to remember that Jesus died for your sin and that by grace you have been saved. We come in to celebrate that together. We come in to sit under the preaching of God's word. And so the, the, the church is for the church. The church is for the church while it's gathered. The gathered people go out into the world and penetrate, right? But the church is for the church. The preaching of the word is for the church. The communion is the communion of the saints. It is the Lord's table for the church, right? So I read this, that their primary focus was a post-Christian world, and it really started to, to, to weigh on my heart heavily about what this, the implications of that and what it could mean. See, the church gathers, having been chosen out of the world to worship the one who called them out, right? The word of God is preached to the elect people of God to bring about the obedience of the faith. 
If the world we live in is post-Christian, then to aim our service toward non-Christians is to become a church in due time that will become post-Christian itself. This is the part I think I'm going to get in trouble for. But if we aim the church at non-Christians, and we aim our behavior at non-Christians, we aim our preaching at non-Christians, then we will soon in due time be post-Christian ourselves. There won't be anything recognizable as the church of God and the church of Jesus Christ. It will no longer become recognizable. And I don't know how many times I've been in some church services where it isn't recognizable. I couldn't tell you that this is a church of Jesus Christ because he's not there. Heather and I, when we were church shopping, when we first moved to the valley from the coast, we went to a, a particular church and we walked out and Heather says, are we coming back? And I said, nope. She says, why not? I said, Jesus isn't here. He isn't there. It had already become a post-Christian church, right? Well, to say this another way, that if we aim towards a post-Christian world, that in due time we would become post-Christian ourselves, I would say it another way. If the world we live in has become post-Christian, it's only because the church became post-Christian first. If the world that we live in, the communities we live in are post-Christian, it's because we as a church, as and I'm, I don't mean this particular body, but churches in general, have become post-Christian first. They've abandoned Christ. They've abandoned sound doctrine. They've abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ as the centrality for their gathering, right? They become post-Christian and led the way to the world that is now post-Christian, if that indeed is true. I don't like the statement of post-Christian at all anyway, because post-Christian also assumes that the world was once Christian, and, and it really wasn't. It's the church that's Christian, right? So to call the world a post-Christian world, well, yeah, it's always post-Christian because it's anti-Christ. The, the world itself doesn't want anything to do with him, right? It never has. It never has. So I, I think that's a, a misstatement anyway. But I would say this, that then my preaching... I hope, and the aim of Spring Hill Church, I hope, is that we do this for the sake of the faith of God's elect and that which accords with godliness. That's the aim of the church, right? It's aimed at the chosen. It's aimed at those who have called, been called out of the world. So Jesus here in verse 18 says, I know whom I have chosen. There's, there's two facets to what Jesus is saying here. One, he's saying, I have chosen 11 of you to hear and obey the scriptures and my instructions. I know those I have chosen and for what purpose I have chosen them. I know whom I have chosen for destruction and disobedience. I know whom I have chosen for wrath. I have chosen one of you according to the scriptures who is a son of disobedience. You can be sure that the scripture will be fulfilled, Jesus says. Jesus, who is our prophet, our priest, and our king, speaks here like the prophets of old, and he uses the same pattern. Jesus argues that though I am a spokesman for God, I am more than that. I am the true God, and whatever I speak will come to pass. Isaiah 48.3 came to mind as I was thinking this through about who Jesus is and him speaking as the prophet. Listen to what Isaiah 48.3 says. The former things I declared of old, they went out of my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. 
They came out of my mouth, and suddenly I did them, and then they came to pass. Right? He's speaking like the prophets of old here. First, he's saying the prophecy. First, he says the prophecy from, from Psalm 41.9. He says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Secondly, he explains the purpose of the prophecy to them. That you would believe the scriptures, and unlike the prophets of old, he could boldly say, and that you would believe in me. Notice he follows, he says, this, the scriptures will surely come to pass. He says what they, what it is. He gives them an explanation for his purpose in saying these things, right? And then he says that you would believe not just my words, but you would believe in me. Could you imagine? Yeah, you, you don't see this anywhere. You don't see Isaiah preaching, uh, uh, setting forth prophecy and saying, I do so so that you would believe in me. He says, no, I, I say these that you believe my words and that you would believe God. But Jesus here, unlike those prophets of old, he says that you would believe the words, the scripture, you could count on it. It will come to pass, but you would also believe in me. And then uh, third, there's the, an encouragement in verse 20. He says, whoever receives you, receives me and the God who sent me. Whoever receives the word of God preached, receives Christ and is among the elect. You see, that's why the, the aim of the preaching is to the elect. Because here I am in a room and I don't know exactly who all the elect are or who they might be. So I preach the gospel to the elect. And that by the power of God, God is electing them as I'm preaching. Convicting the elect of sin, righteousness, and judgment as I'm preaching. So the gospel, the, the worship service is for the elect of God. Whoever receives the word of God preached receives Christ and is among the elect of God. The church ought to not trifle, I think, with God's plan of using preaching of the gospel to call the elect to repentance and faith. But when I say that the, that the, that the American church as a whole has sort of gone this other way, has gone the way of this post-Christianity kind of thought, is that They've removed God's plan for calling the elect. God calls the elect to salvation and faith through the preaching of God's word. So why would the church become an entertainment center that entertains the world, that looks like the world, that has videos and skits and dances and all of those things so that the world would be you know, comfortable in our midst? No. The church, its purpose is to call the elect out of the world through the preaching of God's word. So I don't think that, that the church ever ought to trifle with God's plan of preaching the gospel and calling the elect to repentance and faith. You see, to call yourself a seeker-friendly church is to begin outside the teaching of Scripture in the first place. Because we know what the Scripture says, don't we? No one seeks for God, no, not one. So you call yourself a seeker-friendly church, you've left the scripture right away. Any church that says they are seeker-friendly, they have left the word of God immediately. They've left the word of God. And they are post-Christian to me at that point. At that point, you are post-Christian because the Christian church understands this truth. No one seeks for God, no, not one. 
And then we preach the gospel of repentance and faith and grace and mercy and tell them all about who Jesus is and all about God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. And those who are the elect of God will be saved. Do we trust that? Do we trust it? It's easy, I think, for pastors to decide not to trust that because it seems too simple. I've got to do something that appeases the masses. I've got to do something where they will feel comfortable to open the door for them. Maybe this is just personal conviction, but, well, it is conviction, and I think it's right, but I will just say this, that the Word of God preached is what saves people. The Word of God preached the truth of Jesus Christ and the Gospel is what brings about salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. And so I, personally, will not trifle with God's plan. I do not want to trifle with God's plan. The Word of God calls the elect to repentance and faith. We should notice another section of the Westminster Confession of Faith because I think it summarizes what is going on here when Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 3, Section 3, goes on to say, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined to eternal life and others foreordained to everlasting death. If it's true that not all dogs go to heaven... That not everybody is saved is what I'm saying. You know that there are people who who have gone to hell and are going to hell, right? It stands to figure that God would be impotent if he could not prevent one soul from going to hell, right? He would be no God that we want to serve. If he just was, it was out of his hands, he couldn't control it, you're just, uh, you know, and... And we, we dare think about this in some ways, and I didn't mean to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's this idea, right, that, that we, men, human beings, male human beings, get to choose their bride. Right? A male chooses whom he's going to get married to, right? He makes a choice. He says that out of all of these possibilities, I choose this one to be my bride at the exclusion of others, right? But we dare say this, God cannot choose his own bride. We get offended when we say that God chooses some to be part of his bride at the exclusion of others. We get offended by that. How dare we say that a man can choose his bride but God cannot? God chooses his bride for himself at the exclusion of others. And you can sit here and say this because I think it all the time. I don't know why in the world out of all the possible choices he could choose, he would choose me. I have no idea why he would choose me and not others. But I just say praise be to God because he must be merciful and kind and forbearing and loving to choose a knucklehead like me. Right? So anyway, there's that. Let's look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one will betray me. So first he has, he has declared the prophetic word in verse 18. 
And here in verse 21, Jesus announces that it is about to come to pass and it will come to pass quickly. We should notice that Jesus here is troubled in his spirit. Jesus is sorrowful that one whom he shared his life with, who he loved and honored as a brother, was chosen for destruction. He's not happy and pleased with the fact that that Judas has been chosen for this path, right? It causes him sorrow. He's troubled in his spirit. He's sorrowful that one he shared his life with, who he loved and he honored as a brother, was chosen for this. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back and turn back for ev- turn back from his evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And then Psalm eleven seven says, God is a just judge, a God who is angry with the wicked every day. Seems contradictory, doesn't it? But then Romans 9, 22 through 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? You see, these are competing emotions with Jesus. He has competing emotions and competing desires. He loved He loved Judas, but Jesus was appointed to this. He has a love for sinners, but he also has a love for the riches of God's glory. And for Jesus, we see the riches of God's glory always wins the day. The riches of God's glory always wins in competing emotions and competing thoughts. And as I thought about this and I prayed through this this week for myself, I'm like, is that the aim of my life? Is it, is that, is the riches of God's glory above all else? Or do I let the competing emotions of my heart and mind win out? Negating or minimizing God's glory. Jesus here, God's glory, the riches of God's glory wins the day. And this is what has troubled him in his spirit. So first we saw that that the prophetic word will come to pass. We saw that Jesus makes this announcement that this will soon come to pass. Let's look at verses 22 through 30. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought... Because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. This is the revelation of Jesus. See, the betrayer has been prophesied, he's been announced, and now he is revealed. When you eat bread with a person in the Eastern cultures, it is a sign of friendship and it's an act of loyalty. 
This is another thing that would have troubled Jesus deeply, right? Here he is at a table with a friend who Jesus had been loyal to, who Jesus had assumed, you know, for some time that Judas was loyal to him. One who had been a witness to the light of the world. Can you imagine this? The light of the world is amongst you, and you are a witness to the light of the world. You've seen healings, and you've seen miracles performed, that you were included in the inner circle of the Word made flesh. And then now, you're being revealed as an imposter and a pretender. See, Judas was present for the foot washing. He was shown the example of humility. He was shown the, he was shown the loving heart of God for sinners. It was clearly on display right before his eyes. And yet, that example was not enough to save him. This means that it's possible that when we gather on the Lord's day in the company of the church, that there are those who would gather with us in the company of God's people in a church where the word of God is preached faithfully, who uh, have by example a witness of the love of the people of God, yet they can be here all this time and be in the company of, of godly people, be in the hearing of the preaching of God's word, seeing a good example, and yet it is not enough to save them. They are not actually a child of God. You see, you must be born again. Jesus says you must be born again in chapter 3. God must act upon dead souls and bring and breathe life into them if they are going to be saved. The example of Jesus was not enough to save Judas. Judas needed to be renewed need to be made new, needed to be chosen. I know whom I have chosen. The 11 disciples who spent countless hours with the betrayer, participating in ministry with him, sitting under the same teaching as he is, is unaware that Judas is not one of them. All of this time they've sat with him, they've ministered with him, they've prayed with him, I'm sure. They've had more suppers with him, they, they've had fellowship with him. And they're not aware that Judas was not one of them. Would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13? In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, we want to begin at uh, verse 24 and look at the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven... Uh, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the, among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until harvest. And at harvest time, I will uh, tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. You see, wheat and tares or wheat and weeds are indistinguishable to the human eye almost. They're very difficult to discern which one is which. 
The same thing is true, that it is difficult to determine the elect from the reprobate. It is, it is hard to know. It is almost indistinguishable in human terms to know the elect and the not elect as they gather together in the church. And Jesus here, using this parable, says, let them grow up together. Let them grow up together. Don't try to gather them up and decide and sort them out because you may gather up some good wheat among them, right? You may be plucking the elect out as well. Don't, don't, don't do that. Wait until the harvest and I will harvest. I will bring those into the barn that belong into the barn and I will burn those that belong to be burned, right? So it is God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign decision, and it is not, a, it is not us uh, to decide. It's difficult to discern the elect. It is difficult to discern the saved from the chosen. Because you know why? Sinners saved by grace, and I don't know how often you guys have been around church, but I think you've probably all been around long enough to know that sinners saved by grace sometimes act and live in deplorable ways. You ever notice that? That sinners sin. That sinners sin. Even those saved by grace sin. And they cause us some problems, right? We also know this, that there are morally upright men and women who can be totally indifferent to the gospel and far from God. You've probably met very morally upright people, well-behaved, well-mannered, but far from God, and would deny the gospel of Jesus Christ right to your face. Right? So as we are gathered in the church, we can't sit there and just decide that because somebody is a little rough on the edges that they're not in Christ. And we can't decide that because somebody seems to be morally upright and well-behaved that they are in Christ. We can't make that decision. But this parable of the weeds and the, and the, tear, and the wheat is they grow up side by side. And God, at the harvest time, will sort that all out. And that's why I think that it is important, as I said from the outset, to preach the gospel to the elect, to make the church about the gospel to the elect, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and that which accords with godliness. That's the aim uh, that, that Paul uh, tells Titus that that's his aim, right? My aim is to be a servant of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and that which accords with godliness. And that's the aim of the church, right? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and that which accords with godliness. So it doesn't mean that we dumb down our behaviors either, right? And say that that rough person who is saved by grace, we want them to not be so rough, right? It doesn't say that we, we stop working towards those things, right? Uh, but it means that we don't just dismiss them as a non-Christian, Right? Yes, so we should conduct our worship service, I believe, and preach the word of God for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And that we should trust in the sovereign will of God to save sinners. We should trust in the sovereign will of God to save sinners. What does the post-Christian do, Christian church do? They trust in a program to save sinners. They trust in entertainment to save sinners. They trust in something that is outside of the preaching of the Word of God, right? They preach a message to the world to save the world, but that's not the method. That's not the message of, of the Bible. That's not the message of the Gospel. They've gone away from the truth. They've gone away 
from trusting in the sovereign will of God to save sinners. I hope we never get to that point where we trust in something else to save sinners. I trust in God's sovereign will to have saved me. Because if it were up to me, I wouldn't have saved myself and I couldn't. And what if it was entertainment that, 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 that made me feel like I was part of, of, of the people of God, right? If I got entertained well. Well, what if all of a sudden the entertainment fell a little short this week? Then I'd have to ask them to do something a little better next time. I didn't like that show you just gave me. Could you do a better show next time? I didn't like the way you sang those songs. Could you put like maybe some drums in there or something else to add to it? Because, you know, I didn't really get much out of what it was that you were trying to deliver to me, right? That's what it becomes. Well, I think, too, therefore, that membership in a local church becomes important. And it becomes important because members who gather together, first, we agree on what the gospel is together. We say, what does the gospel consist of and consist in? And we ask potential new members to commit to the gospel, to that truth, to those truths, and to each other. And also, membership helps the elders know who it is that they are to, to account themselves for. They are accountable to God for those who are the elect among them. They need to know who they are. They need to know what standard to hold a person to. If I know a person and they are not a believer, but they are gathered here every week, I'm not going to hold them to the standard of the gospel. They can't live up to it. They haven't been transformed. They haven't been changed. I can't hold them to a standard where they have no ability. The Holy Spirit isn't, isn't living in them to will and to do of God's good pleasure. I can't hold them to that account. But if a person comes and, and they clearly confess the gospel from a position of a standard, a, a position of understanding, then the shepherd holds that person to a gospel standard, right? And we can say boldly and bluntly, that, my friend, is not how you learned Christ. And notice what Paul says after that when he says that phrase. He says, this is not how you learned Christ. And then he follows it with, if indeed you learned him. If indeed you did learn him, something will change. You will begin to change, right? And also, when we look at this passage, we see the patience of Jesus, don't we? Jesus had great patience with the unrepentant Judas. He is seated... Judas is seated to the left of Jesus. The seat of honor was to the left of the host. Judas, all the way to the end, is at a place of honor. Jesus is patient with sinners like you and me. And we have to be patient with one another by Jesus' example. Slow. Slow to cast someone out. Slow to say, I give you over to Satan and to the world. Slow. So, he's seated there to the left, and Satan enters the heart of Judas, and Jesus says, what you have a mind and a heart to do, just do that and do it quickly. Judas, having been in the presence of light, though, think about this, what is going on in this passage? And as it ends, it ends with the word, and it was night. 
He's in the presence of the light of the world. And then Satan enters him and he's cast out into the night, into darkness. He's gone from light to dark. The word is prophesied. The word is announced. The word is revealed. And Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And as I think about this, what is the one thing that you can trust in this life? What is the one thing that you can trust about your future? What can you trust about your future? You can trust this, that the word of God will come to pass. That is what you can trust. You can trust that the word of God will come to pass. You can also trust the words of Jesus Christ, who says, I'm coming again. It will come to pass. You can trust the words of Jesus Christ when he says that you must come to the Father through him. You can trust that that's the only way. You can trust that there is a way. You can trust that he is the way. You can trust that he is the truth. You can trust that he is the life. You can trust that the sacrifice for your sin was complete. It was a once and for all sacrifice because Jesus said so and the word of God says so. And it will and has come to pass. If you are a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ right here where you sit, that faith that you have, that confession that you make, it is actually evidence that the word of God has come to pass. It's evident that the word of God has come to pass, that it accomplishes what it says it will, that it has come to pass, that the words of Jesus Christ ring true, and that Jesus, what he says, what he has done, has come to pass. And I think we can trust then that in the future, what Jesus says about our future will come to pass. It will come to pass. And I hope that you and I are keeping our eyes on the sky and saying, Lord, come. Lord Jesus, come. Come and come soon, right? I hope he comes today. I'm hoping for today. There's a lot of things I want to do tomorrow in this life, right? Still in my own mind and heart. But if he came today, would any of you be disappointed? that you didn't get tomorrow? No, <laughs> we wouldn't, would we? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, let us pray and then take a moment to reflect silently on God's word. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for this time and pray that you would have your way in us. Amen. Lord, you are good to us and I just pray that we would have the, the confidence and the understanding to know that uh, the word of God will come to pass. The words of Christ will come to pass. The things that your scriptures teach us about our future will come to pass and that we will have confident faith and trust in uh, the word of God and the God from the word, Lord. That we would trust the word made flesh for us, for our sin and for the new life that you've given us by the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of the Lamb that washes us clean, Lord. I pray we would have confidence in our future. Confidence 
that what you have decreed will come to pass in our lives. So we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.